even if you're you know, a nanny or a care provider or a cleaner, if you're using these platforms, you're kind of in the same situation in terms of your leverage, um, the imbalance of power that you have between you and this platform company, um, and the fact that both you and your now um, other domestic workers are aggregated for the first time under one of these platforms. And the scenario for us before trying to organize domestic workers meant going person to person, maybe going to an agency, maybe being at a park to try to find you know, nannies who are out on the job. And the situation with platforms that I'm really interested in is that there's a lot of downsides to having tech come in and start to mitigate domestic work. But there's also the upside from an organizing perspective of one place to go um, to make change, one place to go to insist that there have to be improvements and there have to be opportunities for change. Um, very often we would experience as organizers that we could fix one employment situation with one, one household, for example, for a nanny. But that's, and we've also been really successful at making changes at the policy level for domestic workers. But what I'm really interested in is if we can figure out how to leverage this new aggregation of workers by technology to allow us to organize them, to allow us to help workers build power, and to allow workers to start to have a collective voice even while they're completely disconnected um, and don't have a, a common workplace or a place where they can meet each other in person. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. One of the most vexing structural problems arising from attempts to institutionalize advancements in labor standards via formalized agreements with companies is the reality that such formalized agreements tie the work organization to the well-being of the company. We formalize these agreements in order to solidify any hard-won gains. We formalize these agreements because it's difficult to sustain a warlike stance with the company at a high level of participation for a long period of time. But at the same time, the agreement formalizes the partnership with the company and often leads to a set of strategies and or tactics that explicitly or implicitly assumes workers and management have enduring common interests. This can result in joint PR events, this can result in work organizations uncritically supporting a company's strategy to generate long-term growth and higher profits. The worst result is the disempowering of the work organization itself. Still, we cannot be purists refusing to sign any agreements with the firm and waiting for the final conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Unions get this reality, and most non-union work organizations that are serious about building power at scale Understand this as well. In this period, where worker power is historically low and union density has fallen to pre-depression levels, the spirit of experimentation must permeate all of our attempts to build greater worker power, including entering into agreements with companies. Because of this need to embrace experimentation, I'm really excited to talk with our guest today, Dawn Gearhart. Dawn is the director of Gig Economy Organizing, for the National Domestic Worker Alliance, NDWA. Dawn is leading efforts to organize workers who utilize an app to connect with potential clients desiring domestic work services. NDWA has just entered into an agreement with the Handy Company to launch a pilot program to improve the quality of work for domestic workers who find work online. Given the rising importance of apps and connecting workers to clients and the attempt of many firms to control the apps, and to resist efforts to build worker power, this effort of NDWA and other NDWD efforts are extremely important. I really look forward to hearing from Don. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhoods, bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become a part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. And Black Work Talk comes to you via 
organizing upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Word Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight who you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. Hey, Don, how you doing? Hi, Stephen. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great for you to be here. What's fascinating, you know, you're the I guess, 17th episode of Black Work Talk. You're the first person I really know. You know, I mean, most people I knew because of A, B, and C reasons, but you're the, you see, you're special, Don. God, I, you, you, I don't know you till now. So, so welcome to the, the Pitts family in a strange way. Glad you're here. Thanks so much. I'm really excited. I had a chance to catch up on uh, several of the episodes, and now I feel like I'm in really good company. So I'm excited to be able to talk to you today. That's great. So, Dawn, who are you? How'd you come to the work? Give me a little pathway there. Yeah. So I grew up um, in a suburb of Chicago, and I had four brothers and four sisters. So I have a oh, really wow. big family. Where are you? Are you in the middle, the oldest, youngest? Where are you? I'm number six. There's three younger and okay. five older. Okay. Yeah. I guess most of us are in the middle. So um, I think having a big family really shaped my understanding of what it meant to have have a network. Um, but it also meant that uh, resources were pretty short at our house. Um, my parents both met working at the United States Postal Service when they were 15 and 16. Um, and my dad stayed working there for the next 43 years until he retired. And it was really important to us um, that he had this good union job because it allowed our family to have security. Um, we still ended up in situations because um, of our situation <laughs> to begin with that uh, occasionally we didn't have a place that we could count on to live. Sometimes we lived in a house. Sometimes we lived in a motel. Sometimes we had electricity. Sometimes we didn't. But I knew from being a kid that the fact that my dad had a union and had a job um, where he had some security and protection, that meant that we would be okay. So um, when I went to undergrad, I, wanted to st- I went to study labor. Um, and during that time, the economy collapsed. So I graduated in 2010, right around the time that we were um, trying to find out if we would ever recover from that collapse. And I went to do an internship at the International Labor Organization. And my job was to write about what we anticipated happening following the crisis um, in the United States. Did you get it right? Unfortunately, uh, the economic modeling that we put together in the 2010 World of Work report showed us that thousands, if not millions of new workers were going to be working Um, in the shadow economy. That's what we used to call it before it became the gig economy. We talked about the shadow economy. We talked about um, precarious work and black market jobs. Um, And we knew that the collapse had just laid all the flaws of the economic and employment system bare in the United States and around the world. Um, And that that was going to have lasting repercussions for workers, especially in the U.S. And I felt like I had a responsibility, given that I had that information, to try and do something about it, try to be part of the solution. So I left Geneva and came back to the U.S. and started working um, for SEIU. That sounds cool. So your first work was doing well for SEIU. What was the sector you're engaged in? Yeah, my first campaigns um, were home care workers in Pennsylvania and adjunct professors in New Hampshire. And eventually I went to Seattle to work on the burgeoning airport campaign. Um, And that was the first exposure I had to a number of workers who were doing, piecing together jobs, but um, piecing together jobs in a way that meant uh, they didn't have control of their schedules. They didn't have access to benefits. uh, They didn't have the opportunity to join the union, either because they were misclassified or because they were subcontractors of a subcontractor for an airline. Um, And so that was the first on the ground organizing experience I had with groups of workers um, who were piecing together a living uh, 
from a number of different companies and, and what that meant about their livelihood and stability. And it really resonated with me um, as the type of cause that I wanted to help find a solution to. I could see the power imbalances um, and I could see workers struggling to find a way, even though they were working full time or more than full time, they still weren't making it because of the structure of their work. And when you say you, you kind of started off with one of the campaign being home care and then going to Seattle and seeing kind of people in the very precarious lifestyle, having to patch of the jobs, that seems to be kind of similar to what you're doing now. Because currently, my correct, you're like doing the, I call the gig economy work for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, correct? Yeah, I'm the gig, my official title is gig economy organizing director. Um But so in Seattle, uh, after the airport campaign, we worked to be able to get $15 an hour for airport workers. It was the first um, $15 an hour minimum wage in the country from a municipal level. Um, And during that campaign, I ended up meeting the taxi drivers who also worked at the airport who were wondering whether they could have a union. But again, they had been classified as independent contractors. Um, there was a few generations of taxi drivers and that came to the U.S. At, during different waves of immigration um, and fleeing as refugees. So there was a, a huge contingency of Ethiopian taxi drivers. The more recent um, workers who had come to be drivers were from uh, Somalia. There was a group from Eritrea. And so almost all of the drivers were black men who had um, secure or stable work. And then because of economic collapse... Uh, in their own countries, ended up coming to the U.S. to do this job. And they were asking the question, can we have rights? Can we have a say? Or does the fact that we're independent contractors by law mean we don't have any of the basic protections or rights um, that other workers have? And that's been the question that I've been wanting to answer that's led me um, to my work at NDWA. You know, Don, here you're talking about your title, this long title you have, right? The Gig Worker Organizing Director of NDWA. But in my mind, I don't think of gig workers and domestic work being the same thing. So tell me how you kind of line these two things up. Yeah, um, that's a great question because at the outset, you wouldn't necessarily think of domestic workers as being gig workers. But at NDWA, we often say, Domestic workers are the original gig workers. They're the workers who make all other jobs possible. And um, the similarities are that they had to piece together a living um, by going from job to job. They've been cut out of the social safety net and they don't have access to the basic protections. Um, And many of the other issues that we've seen for gig workers like having to be one-on-one with a a customer or an employer and having to navigate that, having the inability to organize effectively because you're one-on-one with those employers is another um, really obvious parallel between gig work and domestic work. And so um, we we really think that uh, domestic workers have always been gig workers, but the new intervention of tech companies into the domestic work market, whether it's connecting caregivers and care providers with families on an app like care.com or connecting cleaners with customers looking for a cleaner on an app like Handy. The new intervention of technology into domestic work has further um, solidified our understanding of domestic workers as gig workers. Okay. Now, one thing I really enjoy about this podcast, and for a selfish reason, I learn. So hopefully the audience learns well, but I learn too, so I'm happy, so I'm happy. And, and let me kind of dig down deeper on this whole question of the domestic workforce. Kind of take, take me from my understanding before Dawn came to my life, and now I get a better sense of what's actually happening, Dawn. So as I think about this, uh, is it correct to say there's like three components of domestic work? We have kind of child care. We have elder care. We have kind of, I call it house cleaning, for lack of a better term. Um, and if, if the terms are wrong, feel free to kind of correct me. But I guess in my mind, what I'm thinking about is simply sometimes the key activity is working with kids. Sometimes the key activity is kind of working with elder, the two ends of the, of the age spectrum. But also you have kind of the house cleaning work. And, and my, is that kind of a good way to kind of look at it? Is that kind of off? Yeah, 
yeah. I and feel free to send us off, by the way. I, I don't mind being off. No, I think I think you're on point. There are several different verticals um, within the domestic work sector. Most of my work has focused on those people who are going into homes and that are using online platforms to find work. So they could be care providers on care.com. They could be cleaners on Handy. Um, but most of my work has been around um, trying to support workers who are using apps and platforms to find jobs. But domestic work in general is about the care sector, the cleaning sector, and the cleaning sector. One last question for that kind of learn more. What I thought initially, and once again, I'm learning to take my initial thoughts and get them to be better, by the way, is that, for lack of a better term, the house cleaning element, which I say is a non-people element, for lack of a better term, once again, the house cleaning element is a bit more episodic and project-based than might be with the person element, um, in the sense that house cleaning, someone may come in every whatever, every month, every week, every before the party starts sort of thing. So it's kind of episodic in that sense. While with the, the people thing, it's more of a, of a, I call it a daily thing, but clearly if it's because of a disability that has a specific sort of time framework, it may not be you know, long lasting, but with the, the child care or the elder care or the other sort of the people care element to it, it's a bit more of a daily thing. Is that kind of correct in terms of kind of the nature of the contact and the work? Yeah, that's correct. Some of the jobs, if you're a nanny, that means you're going to be with one kid or um, a couple of kids with one or two families over a long period of time, potentially, where cleaning very often, um, especially when you're using apps to find jobs, it works the same way as uh, finding a driver on Uber, you may never see the person again, but you do have to be vulnerable. You do have to go into someone's home without having information about it. Um, and you are very often just at the mercy of the situation when you arrive. So all domestic workers have that in common, but there are situations where there are long and uh, shorter term relationships with clients and customers. So I hate to be questioning like you're, you're being grilled right now, but one other question. And so your focus is on domestic work done via the app. Is it primarily focused when we describe when we describe it, or is it to say that you primarily focus on the house cleaning element of domestic work? Which is the better way to describe your activity? It's all workers. It's all domestic workers who are using apps to find jobs, um, and I feel really comfortable being in that position. Even if you're, you know, a nanny or a care provider or a cleaner, if you're using these platforms, you're kind of in the same situation in terms of your leverage, um, the imbalance of power that you have between you and this platform company, um, and the fact that both you and your now um, other domestic workers are aggregated for the first time under one of these platforms. And the scenario for us before trying to organize domestic workers meant going person to person, maybe going to an agency, maybe being at a park to try to find, you know, nannies who are out on the job. And the situation with platforms that I'm really interested in is that there's a lot of downsides to having tech come in and start to mitigate domestic work. But there's also the upside from an organizing perspective of one place to go um, to make change. One place to go to insist that there have to be improvements and there have to be opportunities for change. Um, very often we would experience as organizers that we could fix one employment situation with one, one household, for example, for a nanny. But that's, and we've also been really successful at making changes at the policy level for domestic workers. But what I'm really interested in is if we can figure out how to leverage this new aggregation of workers by technology to allow us to organize them, to allow us to help workers build power and to allow workers to start to have a collective voice even while they're completely disconnected um, and don't have a, a common workplace or a place where they can meet each other in person. So um, there's a big overlap as more and more companies start to realize that they can be the intermediary between a domestic worker and a household and that they can profit off of that. And so um, I'm really interested in the type of leverage we can build there. 
any sense of what proportion of the work is done via the app intermediary versus not? I, I have no idea. I'm just kind of saying, I don't know. So any sense? There's is a, it 50-50? Is it, I mean, what, what, any idea? There's really limited data because this um, has happened so rapidly and because it's been somewhat opaque. But when we talk to domestic workers, I would say about 50% of the work from the workers I talk to comes from um, platforms and the other 50% happens in the traditional domestic work sphere. So a lot of the cleaners, for example, have kept all of their old cleaning clients, but now they're using TaskRabbit to find some jobs or they're using Handy to find some jobs or uh, maybe they're doing other types of work on another platform. And so I think because workers have continued to be precariously employed, we thought or hoped that jobs would come back and people would have one job where they make enough money, they hopefully have a union contract, and then they're part of the safety net. But now we continue to see the proliferation of more and more precarious work, and that means more and more workers using apps to find jobs. What's your sense of the racial composition of different elements of, of domestic work. And any thoughts on that? Yeah, about 91% of domestic workers are women um, as compared to 46% in other work. Um, more than half are women of color. Um, and more than half of those are, or the vast majority are women of color, but more than half are black women. Um, disproportionately, the workers are immigrant workers. About 65% of domestic workers um, were born in the U.S. versus 83% for other sectors. Um, and what we've seen on these app platforms, because of how they're structured and because you need to pass a background check or have a social security number or speak English to use them, um, it's not just, it's a little bit different demographic because it's mostly Black women who were born in the U.S. that are doing these types of cleaning jobs um, that we've seen, which is very unique Um for lots of reasons. No, it's interesting you saying that because I think a lot of times when we talk about race and, and labor, um, oftentimes our analysis is um, not to be at our pejorative, but kind of sh shallow enough. And so we quickly ascribe race to being the process that was located in the economy. And it seems to me that, that, that it's a variety of pathways into the flooding mechanism. And so in a broader sense, if you think about people who may have been formerly incarcerated, that kind of constrains their possibilities. And so it's not just the race itself, although clearly the race is linked to mass incarceration, but not just race, also mass incarceration is flooding people. And here I hear you saying, Dawn, that in the case of, of the, 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 the domestic work segment of the labor market, that the apps is also the app being as a tool being used and the issue of the background checks and so forth, that's also a sliding mechanism. And, and the simple I'll say papers, no papers might say. So it's a fascinating thing to get a clear sense of how it's not just the surface element of race or gender that does it, it's some other institutions that well bring into the sliding process. That, to me, that's the, it's fascinating to hear that, how it plays out in different parts of the economy. Yeah, I think probably from your perspective, you have an overview of how it is for black workers in general. I think my more narrow perspective of gig work has shown me that um, I wasn't, I was like, I would say I was slightly surprised. I spent um, more than seven years organizing taxi and Uber and Lyft drivers right when those platforms started. Um, so just months after launching, I was working to organize drivers and I noticed right away um, that it couldn't have been a coincidence that almost all of the workers were black or people of color. And almost all of them were immigrants or refugees and from the most vulnerable segments of society. So it's people who came and they're on really limited time to be able to find a job and find work. Many of them had family members whose visa status was dependent upon their ability to work. And they would sign a contract or get roped in or what felt like something simple and easy. They would download an app and go out to work. And within a short time, they were in this position where they kind of owed the company money before they could make money on these apps and on these platforms. And so I really felt like 
um, learning about how to organize and how to pull people together and how to make change um, through my work with drivers directly translated to the work that I'm doing now at NDWA. When I was organizing drivers, we took a policy and legislative approach to determine if we could solve the issues workers were facing. And my work at SEIU, we took a union traditional organizing contract campaign approach to figure out if we could solve this power imbalance. And now in my work at NDWA, we're thinking about if we can use private bilateral agreements to empower workers and give them voice and try to shift that balance of power. We've seen it before in history, especially in this country. And I raise it just because I think when we don't have the deepest sort of process understanding of labor market itself, then our country and the reality of racism in our country allows the quickly default to solutions being representation. If it's a change representation in a certain sector, certain strata, you might say, that changes the actual problem itself. And to extend the problem is not just identity, but also processes that are linked with separate identity, um, we don't fully solve the problems. That's why I was mentioning that. And I keep hearing, I enjoy hearing more, more details. You said something about entering into using what's called bilateral agreements. Um, what do you mean by that exactly? Yes. In negotiating in NATO or something and trying to resolve world peace and climate change? What's going on now? Well, one day, um, right now, we're just launching. We launched last week, actually, um, a pilot where there's an agreement between a partner organization, it's called NDWA Gig Worker Advocates, and a company called Handy, which is the biggest dispatcher of cleaning jobs um, in the U.S., and uh, the pilot is just an experiment in three states, in Florida, in Kentucky, and in Indiana, jobs with dignity. So the pilot itself, some of the elements in the agreement that we negotiated include $15 an hour as the base for all cleaners in these states. Right now, I think the minimum wage in Florida is $8.56, and in Kentucky and Indiana, I think it's $7.25. It's the national minimum wage. Many of these workers are making twelve to thirteen dollars an hour, but because of this pilot, they're already making fifteen. Um, now that's been implemented, another element is every worker um, who does a job as a cleaner on handy in one of these states is going to earn a dollar and twenty-five cents every hour in paid time off. Which means if they're a full-time worker, they'll earn twenty days off per year. And if they're a very part-time worker who only does four jobs a week, they're still going to earn five days of paid time off every year as part of this agreement. We're really excited to be able to test this new paradigm, both for uh, the organizing component, but also because we're coming into this um, with wins in hand, you know, with a fair wage in hand with paid time off and uh, insurance benefits in hand. But what I'm most excited about is that there's built into this agreement 24 meetings over the course of two years that will allow workers to provide input on changes at the company directly to executives within Handy. Um, this is a first of its kind agreement for the gig economy, um, and it's just one more way that we can test if it's possible for workers to have a voice and for workers to be able to, um, in some ways, influence the process, even without direct representation. So um, this agreement is, is a pilot, this agreement is an experiment, and this agreement is potentially a way forward um, for workers in the gig economy right now. Yeah, I'm super big on pilots and experimentation. One of my favorite phrases is, let 100 flowers bloom, because there's no one pathway. So it's good to experiment and see what works and how, how you can improve upon all the experiments to, to sharpen the process. L let me get clear again. I'm, I'm, I'm slow, especially on Friday mornings on these things, okay? Don't this is fast today. God, I'm not just learning shit today, right? So, so I hear we, ha we have th this work being done in this platform context. I heard you talk about some different sort of, my term like labor standards. So I'm a client, and I kind of go to the app, the handy app, I'll call it, where you have this pilot project. What did I see? Do I see simply these are the terms of the deal, 
and I find something, what, what, tell, walk me through what I'm going to see in this pilot project as a, from the client point of view. You know, what's interesting is um, you might assume that the client plays a big role and that the client has a lot of information. What I've learned is that um, clients assume, they just assume that the workers on the platforms they're using are making uh, living wages and that they have access to benefits and that they have access to protections. And it's very often not the case. But your experience as a customer um, isn't going to change very much as a result of this agreement. We really wanted to be clear that workers weren't going to have to in some way pay the price for their own benefits or pay the price for an increase in their wages. And so the way that it is structured is that there is no decrease in pay for workers but for and, and for customers, um, their experience is going to be largely unchanged. What we expect to change is potentially the amount that the company is taking from their percentage of the transaction. Um, and we really feel like that means that there's this big opportunity to try doing things a different way. But many gig economy companies are trying to figure out how to retain workers on their platforms. So this could be a tool for keeping those platforms competitive. NDWA has been working for the respect and dignity of domestic workers for more than a decade. And we believe that all domestic workers should have fair pay, benefits, and a voice at work regardless of how they find jobs. This pilot is a way to find new forms of organizing and to shape the conditions at work for domestic workers in the gig economy, and that's why we're excited about it. These are the sorts of things we're hoping to achieve and learn about over the next two years, where we think two to 4,000 workers will be impacted through the agreement. Quick question. Um, so the agreement you signed handy, is it a three-year agreement, a... When you agree, what's the, this one question, the, the, the term, the terms of, of, of the agreement, just wondering. Yeah, it's a two-year agreement. It has a okay. built-in one-year extension. My dream is that every worker uh, who's using a platform or an app to find work uh, can also start to have access to these same types of benefits and be part of the safety net and that other companies will be inspired to reach the same types of agreements and that more organizations uh, will be inspired to look for other types of solutions. I think we keep seeing over and over with different campaigns, um, whether it was the Amazon campaign in Alabama earlier this year or the um, the broader campaign that's been happening at Walmart over the past several years, that we have to keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Given uh, labor laws as they are today, there's very little room to move for workers. And so whether you're a worker organization or a traditional union, I've seen more and more that we have to push the boundaries. And I've been impressed that organizations are willing to do that. And so I'm hoping that this is another point where we can test and say, does this work? Do workers have a say? Does that mean that conditions are better? And if so, can we expand this? Can we extend it? Can we make it so everybody's covered? Now, one thing I, I bring to, I guess, my life to show how we describe it, is is the, the whole issue of a movement perspective, and I'm what I mean by that is that in one role of the interventions in the workplace is to raise labor standards, wages, benefits, dot dot dot. We often talk about a different sort of role of the intervention is to give workers a voice in the production process itself, where we, may, where we may be. It could be in the home, could be in a car factory, but the idea is give a worker's voice. Um, sometimes worker's voice is a synonym for power, but we'll let that alone for right now. But I want to raise a third sort of, of kind of benefit of the intervention and hear your thoughts on it and how it may apply or not apply in the context of what the work you're doing. I think beyond the idea of raising labor standards, and providing a voice, well, also it's important in building community. Where I, I think that when I think about what is happening more and more in our society is that as a function of the changes in our economy, we're seeing the kind of weakening of the communal bonds. And, the, and you have those weaker bonds, it's easier for people to be infected, let's say, with QAnon and those sort of things. And, and see solutions as individuals, not as a collective project. 
And, and so I think about the heyday of having strong unions and strong other civil society organizations, there's a sense of community that allowed you to see a joint, a linked fate, allowed you to have some capacity to, air, to talk through differences, whereby people who are different in some ways, some and others can recognize that kind of duality. And, and so I wanted to, to raise the question of the community building piece of the work and, and how do you see that being an element of an outcome of the work you're doing? I am really excited that you raised that point because it's a key challenge of domestic work in general and domestic worker organizing is this isolation. Whether it's a black domestic worker in New York City or whether it's a domestic worker in the United Arab Emirates, they're a huge part of why they're vulnerable is this sense of isolation and the real experience of isolation. It's not that you're the only one on your floor in a hospital or nursing home. It's that you're literally the only person on the job um, and you're totally alone on a day-to-day basis. And so um, it's a huge aspect of domestic work and domestic worker organizing. And I can tell you how uh, reassuring it was to be able to start talking to more and more cleaners who are using Handy and hear them say, oh, I'm so excited. I thought I was the only one who had this problem. I was the, I thought I was the only one who had this idea. I was the only one who ran into this. And we actually established one of the first online worker ecosystems for cleaners who are using these apps. And that was the first thing people started to say is, wow, there's more of us. We're here. We're together. We see each other. And it's a huge part of NDWA's work. And I think especially for this pilot, the fact that we have um, affiliate organizations, worker organizations in places like Florida who have cleaners who are doing their regular cleaning jobs and participating in NDWA um, and working to do organizing. They're also now using these apps to find jobs. And so the idea of moving from online to offline organizing becomes more and more important when the workers are isolated. Even in my work with um, drivers, it was like there was a couple parking lots where you could go to meet up and you knew all the other Uber drivers and taxi drivers would be there. You could do a cookout there while you wait for trips. You could sit and talk. You could whatever. But for domestic workers, they don't have those opportunities. Um, And it's even more and more true as they're using the Internet to find work. It's no longer that they're going to an agency. Um, so I think the community building piece is probably actually one of the most exciting aspects. Um, just being able to pull together a small group of workers um, last week and hear what they thought and have them present it directly to the general counsel and the interim CEO of this company um, was really, really, I think, grounding. Um, and the feedback we got from those cleaners was that having that community and having the sense that they had each other's backs made them feel like they could speak truth to power and that there was hope for a positive outcome at, at the end. So, so a couple of things, in some ways, another benefit um, for, the, for the pilot project about attracting workers is the community building piece. It's not just the other elements. The idea that, oh, wow, I see some people come around my friends now. This is which is super important, you know. Um, I, I, you raised the issue of the the, the Amazon battle in Bessemer, and the whole kind of the battle for unionization there, and and the attempts to show support for workers. I've always thought that that what's important in in winning those kind of difficult battles is people having the sense they're willing to go through a brick wall to win. The whole slogan, one day longer sort of thing. And, and, and that sort of sense of I'll go through a brick wall for the cause comes from a sense of community. Now, it can't come from Stephen Pitts writing a letter in support of workers in City A or whatever else. It comes from knowing that I know who I'm going to battle with and I feel good about it. And clearly in the context of, of the project, I'm not saying you're going to battle with Handy in that sense at all. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that, that, that the community building piece is super important both for workers' sense of themselves, but also the, the things beyond just handy that's important to, to take care of. You're 100% right. I think there's no way um, that we could be successful. And I can th- I think this is also true of the broader 
um, labor movement that we're part of, but we know as domestic workers that it's been pivotal. It's been critical for us to be able to come together. NDWA is now made up of more than 67 individual affiliate organizations. Some of them are, you know, three former domestic workers who are running this worker center out doing on the ground organizing, still working as domestic workers and trying to build community. And I think having everybody under this collective umbrella, all hopefully 2.2 million domestic workers in the United States under one umbrella um, means that we can fight, means that we can do things like pass domestic worker bill of rights at the state level. And then hopefully at the federal level, we've introduced that legislation again. Um, None of that would be possible without this internal aggregation, without this organizing um, that gives us a, a sense of community. I think Um, the pandemic played a huge role in diminishing that sense of community overall in society. But I do think the fact that we had regular instances where domestic workers could come together virtually and safely, um, but could come together to be there for one another and support each other um, and understand the challenges that they were facing, even in disparate locations, um, really helped to get people through. That was what we heard. That's the feedback that we continue to get from domestic workers. And so I'm excited to hear about the project and see how it turns out. You know, it's um, a super, super important experiment and do the best we can and learn, do better next time around. So I'm super excited to hear more about that. It's important to do that. What do you see as some of the implications of the work you're doing around domestic work, gig work, the Handy Project? What do you see the implications for future broad-scale Black worker organizing? Any thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts about this. I really have an ambition, and I've shared this with the company already um, and with others, to move this pilot as it stands to more states. I think, um, you know, there's a few thousand domestic workers who are using platforms like Handy in Texas and in Georgia. And I think if I was a domestic worker in Texas and I had a friend in Florida who used the same app as me, and they were making $15 an hour and earning $1.25 an hour, um, and paid time off, I would want those same benefits. And I think if we're successful in demonstrating that it does improve conditions, it might lower costs for the company, and it might mean a better quality of work, both for consumers and for cleaners, that we should be able to expand the pilot. I hope that other companies and other organizations outside of this sector also see this as an opportunity that we don't necessarily have to wait for a legislative change or a Supreme Court decision or permission to start building power for workers who are using the internet to find jobs. I think regardless of your classification or the way that you find work, you deserve fair pay and benefits and access to the safety net. And I think, um, you know, we certainly have the ambition to be able to have as many domestic workers as possible covered under these, um, have these types of provisions as part of their day-to-day work, whether it's through policy or through a bilateral bilateral agreement. Um, I think we're demonstrating that there is another way. And uh, I hope that we add it into our um, collective strategies about how to build power. Now, um, now I think about how, now I'm more educated, Dawn, thank you that now I can see how domestic work is gig work. Um, so, so, so I just wonder once again, um, the strategy of, of bilateral agreements and that comes because of the, the use of, of platforms and apps to be a part of the labor market intermediation process. Do you see other sectors beyond domestic work where it may be, be useful to, to engage it? Definitely. I really think I think, you know, my own experience organizing drivers, I think that a lot of um, what we've been hearing about in the media, about potential deals and potential agreements are um, different iterations on this idea that even if the law isn't set up currently to allow workers who are drivers or who are cleaners who use apps to find jobs to be in a traditional union or um, have traditional labor rights and protections, that there has to be a path forward, even while it takes our society some time to catch up with the technological changes. I don't think policy has caught up. I don't think our governing our laws and governance have caught up to the way that our society is currently operating and the way people are working. I do understand that 
in the interim, workers are experiencing the challenges and dealing with the downsides of the fact that this is their reality, even as governance hasn't caught up to it. So I think in sectors uh, like delivery, like driving, uh, there's a real opportunity for workers who don't have power to start to have power and for workers who are not making living wages to be able to make living wages. They've tested that out through laws in Seattle and New York, for example, for drivers. But I think that there's we can push it much further. There's a long way to go. Um, and until all workers have access to the safety net, we haven't gone far enough. This is cool. Um, I want to circle back to, to you, Dawn, for a second, um, to kind of begin to close close down this, this podcast. I mentioned that you're special. I didn't know you before before now. But now I know you're a Chicago person. If you go through all my, my guests, somehow Chicago is there in a lot of them, by the way. So now you, that's your theme. You're my, my Chicago peeps, okay? But But, but you mentioned a bit about um, your family background and how they shape how you see the world and, and, and your work in college and so forth. But if you had to identify one aha moment that kind of got you into the movement, what might it be? That got me into the movement. Yeah, I really, I really think um, when we went to publish that report and it was there in black and white and it had been peer reviewed and experts had looked at it, not just me as an intern and said, we are clear that workers are going to struggle worldwide because of this financial collapse. And, you know, that there was important, there was a pathway that we can move forward. That meant we were just going to accept that that meant the loss of protections, the loss of rights, the loss of incomes, the loss of stability, or that we had to look for new paths forward. And so I really feel like we had no choice but to try to find as many ways as possible to make sure that workers could have a say, could make fair wages, and could be part of the safety net, um, even with the ongoing disruption. I think the pandemic showed us that, once again, um, things are not as stable as they might seem. And for vulnerable workers, they already knew that was the case. And it's just been once again laid bare for all to see. But I think um, it's even more clear now why we need a safety net and why we need everybody to participate in it, um, no matter how they're finding work. So I think the aha moment for me was understanding that economists like you, Stephen, could predict what was going to happen and choosing that, choosing to, to try to intervene as much as possible um, and as quickly as possible to um, make sure that just because things were going to be bad, that doesn't mean they couldn't get better and even get surpass how they had been before the collapse. So um, that's, I think, was the moment for me. Yeah, yeah. Dawn, how do you define Black freedom? Um, it's attainable. <laughs> it's out there. I feel like if I had to define Black freedom, it's this um, this undercurrent of worry that's been there all my life that I've experienced. And I imagine there's some people who walk the earth that don't experience that. And it seems like it's true whether you're Black and you're rich or you're Black and you're poor, um, if you're Black and you're a woman or you're Black and you're a man, that this undercurrent of fear, this undercurrent of instability, I think Black freedom would mean that doesn't exist anymore. We're not born with that and we don't have to walk with that forever. So I'm hopeful that we're moving towards that day. Um, but I think, you know, that's that's what it would feel like freedom to me. Okay, that's cool. Um, what books are you reading? I just finished Becoming. Um, I was really excited. I watched the uh, their Netflix version of Michelle's tour for the book. Um, I love seeing her out and just talking about really her career and uh, raising her kids and the choices she made and being in the White House. And now I'm really excited to uh, move on to former President Obama's book, his latest book. Um, okay. Again, standing by in the bookshelf. Sounds cool. Um, how about music? I mean, I love music. I, I mean, sometimes it's, I'm so distracted by way, but turn YouTube on, put a, on a video or something. I love music. But how about you? What, mu move, move, what music are you listening to? Okay. Have you watched uh, Black is King? Beyonce's Black visual is album? 
Black is King. Okay, highly recommend it. There's a song on the album, the first song um, in the visual album, and the first song on the album is called Bigger. And she says something like, you're not just a speck in the universe, you're you're part of something way bigger. And um, every time I hear it, I feel like reassured and re-inspired. And I think um, I highly recommend the visual album, but even just the the album itself um, is a work of art and I can recommend it. I do. I will get it. Do you need to get that all on title, or have they released it beyond title as, as a way to get? To oh, it's on Spotify. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus. Okay. You can watch the visual album on Disney Plus. It's on Spotify. I'm sure you can find it on bits of it on YouTube. But I'd start with the song "Bigger." Okay, I'll do that. Okay, thanks a lot. Don't have been great. I mean, it's good to meet new friends and to expand my family. You might say, and I look forward to seeing the work that you're doing, both particularly the house, the, the handy project. But how do you expand that and things beyond that as well? This has been great. So thanks a whole lot, okay? Thank you, Stephen. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. It was wonderful to talk with Dom and learn more about domestic work as gig work and the NDWA's pilot program with Handy. I am clearer now as to why domestic work can be considered good work, and I'm excited to hear of the lessons and outcomes from this program. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network for our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well. <laughs>